1: Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in.
0: Welcome
2: back to a Buckeye Retalkable. Douglas Maurice, Stephen Means, Nathan Baird for the first time ever. I think we've done 12 of these. Because I'm actually making a homepage for them so they can all be on the same place on Cleveland.com. And then people could just go there and find the podcast because they're evergreen. They don't go away. First time ever we're doing basketball. And I'm excited about this. It's 10 years ago. The last time the Final Four was in New Orleans. The last time Ohio State was in the Final Four. And it is Ohio State versus Kansas in the 2012 Final Four. Steven, was this a worthwhile endeavor? I know there are some football listeners to Buckeye Talk who are like, man, these guys have been a little basketball heavy the past couple of weeks. But you don't have to be a diehard Ohio State basketball fan to enjoy a walk down memory lane with Lenzel Smith Jr.,
0: I mean, it's also March, so if we're going to be basketball heavy in any month, it's probably going to be March. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, Interesting brand of basketball. If you listen to our Wednesday podcast where we were complaining about, well, where I was complaining about some of the problems with Big Ten basketball, you watch this game and it's like, man, I miss this type of Big Ten basketball where that type of play actually worked. And also, you know, it took me a little bit down memory lane. We've done a lot of these and obviously they've all been old, but this is like the first thing that's actually made me feel old because I remember what was happening in my life at the exact moment this game was
2: being played. Nathan, I will say like watching something like this, there's a couple things that stand out, but there's a lot of other things that are like, this feels like right now, kind of in some ways, this doesn't, the telecast doesn't feel ancient. You know, the the style of play doesn't necessarily feel ancient. It is a little interesting that the announcing trio for this game is Jim Nance, who's still around, Clark Kellogg, who's now in the studio for CBS instead of being part of the main play-by-play, and the guy who's the current coach of a mini NBA dynasty. It's Steve Kerr, which I would have – I knew Steve Kerr did – TV, I thought he was like TNT NBA stuff. I don't really remember Steve Kerr as a college announcer, Nathan. So when he came on, I was like, wow, this is surprising me.
1: Uh, I did not remember it either. I also had that same whiplash. I put him down for one of our categories, just the appearance of Steve Kerr. And it's just a weird little gap in his life. Like I I remember him as a Chicago Bull. I know him now as one of the best basketball coaches on the planet. I don't remember this era of him, but you're right. This, this, this seems like it's in quite, it's in a fun little sweet spot where it can be both nostalgic, but still feel very current. So I guess we
2: can talk about this during the course of the podcast. We're going to do the football categories that we have and they don't exactly fit a basketball game. So if they don't fit, we'll ignore them, but we'll jam stuff in sideways and cram it in and see what happens. Like we always do on this podcast.
1: I do want to allow this game to... cram in- it in and see what happens, Buckeye. Talk. Yeah. <laughs> I do want to allow
2: this podcast discussion to inform us a little bit about Ohio State basketball currently. And people have gotten their fill of current Ohio State basketball. But just as a baseline off the top, Steven, they didn't go very deep in this game. They have their five starting guys. It's Jared Sullinger, Aaron Kraft, Deshaun Thomas from that recruiting class, plus Lenzel Smith Jr. as a carryover and William Buford as a carryover, right? Lenzel's not that class, is he? Or is Lenzel that class? Lenzel's that class?
0: Yeah, 2010 class. Okay.
2: But Deshaun and Lenzel didn't play as much the year before. The year before, they were the number one team in the country, and that was all the remnant guys. Lighty, Diebler, Buford coupled with this freshman class that was primarily Sullinger and Kraft. They went like six deep the year before Dallas Mm Lauderdale in there too, as an old guy and really Sullinger and Kraft were the only freshmen who played. Now they're back as sophomores and Sullinger and Kraft are like veterans by now. And Deshaun Thomas is Mm -hmm. becoming a dude and Lenzel Smith Jr. is also there doing his thing. And then you still have, you've lost Diebler, you've lost Lighty, but you still have William Buford hanging around being a very good player. so And then they have Sam Thompson off the bench, Evan Ravenel off the bench, and a brief appearance by your friend and mine, Amir Williams. The talent level, Stephen, when you watched Ohio State basketball play this game compared to all the Ohio State basketball games you watched this season, did you think the talent level was similar or did you think it was not similar?
0: To like what they had this year? Um, Yeah. higher.
2: 2012 is higher. or this yeah, is higher.
0: 2012 is higher. No, 2012 is higher. <laughs> yeah, the, the roster 10 years ago is higher. And the reason it's higher is I think if you go EJ Liddell versus Jared Sellinger, I might give the to EJ, but it might be that might be a wash. Malachi versus Sean Thomas, I'm giving it to Branham because Deshaun Thomas is a great score, but like that's kind of it. That's just. You know, he doesn't really have any upside anywhere else while with Malachi Brandon started to show some playmaking ability as they they were putting the ball in his hands literally from the season against Akron because EJ fouled out. But where it starts to drop off is Ohio State's leading scorer in 12 is William Buford, who's averaging 14 a game. Ohio State's leading scorer in 2022 is sitting on the bench because he's dealing with a groin injury all season. That's just a suing. So that's why it's higher is because after those first two where it might be equal, it's the drop-off where Ohio state, even if they didn't go deep in this game, you still got Buford. You still got Seibert who didn't really pan out at Ohio state, obviously he ended up at Dayton, but still the basketball player, Linzel Smith, uh, Shannon Scott, the, the three through nine are better for Ohio state than they are now. I mean, Jesus three through nine are better for Ohio state in 2012.
2: than They were in 2022. Yeah, I agree 2012 was better. And for instance, and this isn't exactly fair, but I was thinking about like Kyle Young, who people, it was a big deal how much this team needed Kyle Young down the stretch when he came back, how important he was. And like, I'm not sure like exactly where Kyle Young's minutes would fit on this team. You know what I mean? That this is, this is not, now this is not a team filled with NBA stars. This is not a game filled with NBA stars. This was the second game of the Final Four. Kentucky had won the first game, and these teams are playing for the right to face Anthony Davis, who was Anthony Davis and then continue to be Anthony Davis for the next decade. Nathan, this is not a who's who. This Kansas team is not a who's who. This isn't like Joel Embiid, Andrew Wiggins, Kansas. This isn't even like Rafe LaFrance, Kansas. This is like, eh? Thomas, this is I actually, Jeff Withy, Kansas. This is Jeff Withy. Uh, we, uh, we have to talk about sort of Ohio State facing kind of random big dudes in the NCAA tournament. I love Thomas Robinson. Thomas Robinson is the best player for Kentucky. He goes on. He's a fifth pick in the draft by Sacramento. Kansas. This for Kansas. Sorry. Thomas Robinson's Kansas best players. Has like a bad first half. Has a good second half in this game. Goes on. Gets drafted number five by Sacramento. Never averages more than five points a game in the NBA in a season. And is playing in South Korea right now. I thought Thomas Robinson was going to be like Paul George or something. Like, I, I, I loved Thomas Robinson. He was a little bit of an undersized big. Paul George is probably a bad comparison. He's like six seven, but he's more of a post guy. But Nathan, like, I just thought this guy had it. He was kind of like the second best player in college basketball that year behind Anthony Davis, and then, like, he never did anything. But again, you watch this game and it's like, yeah, well, you know, some of these guys are in the in the TBT tournament. But otherwise, nobody's doing anything. It's 10 years later and they're all done playing basketball that matters.
1: Yeah, I was looking at those big guys like Withy was a good example. I know we'll talk about him more, but the guy who like goes in the NBA, plays a few years off the bench. And then now he's over playing somewhere overseas like that was this was more of a college basketball game than a pre professional basketball game. Yeah. And you get both. That's what kind of the awesome thing about March Madness is, right? Because you get both. You sometimes get to have those teams that have, like, two future pros where they have an Anthony Davis, a guy who's just like, well, this guy is going to go do amazing things, and we're going to have to hear about him for, like, as you say, the next decade. And you get you, to experience that, but then you also get to sometimes experience, I mean, we just saw it with uh, St. Peter's in, like, an extreme version, but these teams of kind of – guys who this is their one last moment in basketball, but it's going to be a lasting moment in basketball because of how they push through. So that, that's too dramatic on Ohio state's end because, and it really, and on Kansas's end too, those are both like major programs, but, but still like, it isn't always, it isn't always the second coming. Sometimes it's just a a group of guys that get it together.
0: Would you call it their one shining moment?
2: It really was. That's, that's beautiful. well i think (laughs) it's really true
1: the one shining moment still applies more to say i mean kansas had guys on this team that had played on the 2008 championship team like it wasn't their one shining moment so this game ohio state gets here I i have a
2: terrible memory like i i remembered this decently well they were a two seed in the east and they played in boston and They played Syracuse. Syracuse was the one seed, and Kansas also wasn't the one seed. They were a two seed. They played Carolina, the number one seed, in their regional final. Both two seeds beat both one seeds. Steven, you said you were a senior in high school. You're playing basketball in high school. Was this like – how big of a deal was this? You're you're a high school basketball player in Columbus. This Ohio State team is in the final four. Were people all jacked up about these Buckeyes 10 years ago?
0: Yes, because of the people – on the roster, I think more than anything else. It's a bunch of Ohio kids. Yep. And you think about it, Jared Selinger, uh J.D. Weatherspoon is still on this team, which is it's hilarious that he had an Ohio state offer because he was literally just a dunker. Uh Aaron Kraft, Jordan Seibert, all played AAU basketball together on the same yep. all Ohio red team that won two national titles while Jared Sellinger and J.D. Both obviously went to Northern high school and then you know John Diebler this this era of Ohio State basketball they were elite with guys who were from the state and from the most part from like two and a half hours from Columbus so it was a little bit more pride behind it but it was definitely the era of Jared Sellinger might be the best player in college basketball he's from Columbus Ohio and he's playing for Columbus Ohio's team
2: yeah it was a great era it was a great era and again when we talked about playing at a high level, but also fans like enjoying it. Fans really enjoyed this era. As we've talked about, that's why the TBT team is still so popular It's because the guys from this team. So they're playing Syracuse in the regional final in the East in the arena where the Celtics play or whatever. Um, They had played Cincinnati in the sweet 16 and they won that game. And then I remember Syracuse, their zone, was really working that year. They were a one seed with Bayheim and it was like, how is Ohio state going to crack this zone? And at this point, Deshaun Thomas had emerged as this dude. He had emerged as this real threat and they had, it turned out Ohio state had like the perfect sort of high post, low post game that they could put Thomas in the high post, Jared Salinger low post, or they could put Sullinger in the high post sometimes, but that guy in the middle of the zone who can catch the ball, who can distribute, who is a threat to score. And they played like an, excellent basketball game, if I remember correctly, to beat Syracuse. And then they roll on. It was kind of unexpected, right? The year before, they were the overall one seed in the tournament. They should have won the national championship. They lost to Kentucky in the Sweet 16. This time around, they are a two seed. They're still good, but it's certainly not still the expectations. But here they are in the Final Four. And nobody really thought anyone was going to beat Kentucky that year because Anthony Davis was so good. But, Nathan, I remember – At least think it to myself, and I think people thought this was like, well, you know what? Jared Sellinger is an inside dude. This team plays defense. Deshaun Thomas has emerged as a secondary inside-outside scorer. If anybody has a chance to sort of mess up Kentucky, it might be Ohio State. That's where they had gotten to by this point, going into this Kansas game that Kentucky was going to win it, but maybe this was the team with the best puncher's chance against
1: Kentucky. I see it on paper and from what I remember from that era it makes sense too. You've got factors like Aaron Kraft on the floor too. I mean what he means as far as like grittiness and stuff, I think that's that gets overextended or overemphasized in the face of a team when you're having to go up against a team like a Kentucky, but to even like have a chance to get there, you sometimes need those guys. It's just got to be paired with what you're talking about, which is that sort of inside outside presence. The, The Thomas Solinger combination. I think when you look at that on paper, you could see how that could be a deep tournament team. When you have the players, the role players on the periphery of that, who are also these like very veteran, very savvy very um, just high IQ guys. I think that combination makes sense, but those other, those other guys have to be clicking.
2: All right, let's get to our categories about this final four game, the Buckeyes and Kansas Jayhawks 10 years ago. We'll do it next on Buckeye talk back on Buckeye talk diving in on Buckeye retalkables Ohio state, Kansas final four, 10 years ago, who won the game, Nathan, who'd you have winning this game?
1: Hard to pick an individual player. I was leaning towards Robinson. Like you said, it wasn't a strong first half, but there were pretty some pretty significant plays over the course of this game, and somebody had to lead this comeback, and that was what he sort of stepped up and did. That's who
2: owned this game, not who won the game. Kansas won the game. Who owned the game? So your vote is Thomas Robinson, 8 of 18, 19 points, 8 rebounds. Steven, who'd you have for this?
0: Yeah. Thomas Robinson for me as well. Once he got going, it was a little bit of a struggle in the beginning, in the first half, to really get him the ball because he's their only offense a lot of the times, and so they were double tripling them and you know, shading guys and fronting them and whatnot. But once he got the ball and once he got a chance to go going, he kind of spurred the comeback for Ohio State, while also Ohio State went cold from the field.
2: So I can't like disagree with that, right? I mean, it's Thomas. He was an all, first team All American. He's their leading scorer in this game. I will say, though, do you guys hear that? Do, or do, you, do I only hear that? I just turn the game back on. Can everybody hear that or just me?
1: No, just you. Just me? Get your headphones on.
2: I don't know how that works. The game turns on on my computer because I still have it queued up. I didn't know if it went out to the world or just into my head. It feels like today. It feels like today. Jim Nance doesn't age. Jim Nance. That guy is like cryogenically frozen. That guy doesn't age at all. So I just got like a little four-second clip of Jim Nance because I can't keep the game from turning on. I said William Buford. And the reason I said that is William Buford infamously sort of shot Ohio State out of the tournament the year before against Kentucky. He was 2 of 16. Never forget it. And in this game, there were stretches where William Buford kept them alive. And he had this putback at the end of the game after the Thomas misses two, three pointers when they're down three and with nine seconds left, William Buford flies in like he's Vince Carter and dunks a putback to cut it to one to keep them in the game. He was six of 10 from the field. And for a guy who kind of was often, you know, the second or third scorer, listen, he's way up there on the Ohio state all time scoring list but he was never really like the go-to guy for a team. He really, I thought, came through in this game. 6 of 10, 3 of 5 from 3, 19 points, led Ohio State, 7 rebounds, he had higher scoring games. I remember he had nights. Nice, Tom Izzo, he killed Michigan State a couple times. And Tom Izzo was just like, man, William Buford is as good as there is. I remember Matt Painter saying, like, William Buford. I'd take a million William Bufords if I could. Steven, I thought William Buford kind of played like a dude in this game. So I get it. Ohio State didn't win. But this was a very effective version of William Buford in a big spot.
0: Yeah, but you said it. If Ohio State wins this game, he's going away the, who owned the game because – Everybody else is struggling, but him, literally, yes. at some point, and it, that's almost the in basketball, that's the epitome of who owned the game. Everybody else sucks today, but I'm gonna make us win anyway. I mean, he like you say, six of ten from the field, but. <laughs> It's fun. It's funny. Ohio State always seems to have that guy. It's Dwayne Washington this era, but in that era, it was William Buford, the guy who he's either going to do this and keep you in a game that, quite frankly, everybody else is struggling. So you should probably be down by like 17 right now, but his shots are falling. So instead you're leading and you're trying to hold off Kansas for as long as you can, or you're going to get the other version of him, which probably popped up at certain points in the season, who shoots those exact same 10 shots, but only makes two of them. And it's why you lose.
2: Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, William Buford, what do you think? What was your impression of William Buford
1: in this game, Nathan? So I didn't have the perspective of what you remember from the previous tournament. I had him down as my JT Barrett underappreciated player. Mm-hmm. And I know I understand where he stands in Ohio State history. But I think from an NCAA tournament, if you're looking at this on the national level, he's not, a, I don't think, a name that people necessarily knew, and which is more the the definition of the award, right? The guy who isn't necessarily a star, but um, made an impact. And I thought he fit there because you're right. I mean, he had some, some huge plays in this game. He hit a, um, this, a big three with a lot of time left. You know, Kansas had started making its comeback. I think it maybe already come back and tied it once, or it cut it maybe down to one. And then how State pushed it back out? He had a big three that made it 49, 43. And it was a, massively crucial stretch of the game because that's where something else we'll talk about later was also happening kind of behind the scenes. And I, it it just seemed like he, as you say, like it was right there in some really pivotal moments and could have been the reason that they won this game.
2: You guys know where William Buford is on Ohio state's all time scoring list. He's like top 10. He's tied for third with Jerry Lucas. It's like, Oh, who are the, your third all time leading scorers? Well, one of the greatest players in basketball history and also Jerry Jerry Lucas. (laughs) So uh, one is Dennis Hobson. Two is Herb Williams, William Buford, 1,990 points tied with Jerry Lucas. So it's one of those things like this guy, he was just kind of a, he played as a freshman. I think he had to play when Lighty got hurt. So he played a little bit more as a freshman. And then he just, he was like a producing guy. He was like a production guy. It was like William Buford scored between like 12 and 15 points every night for four years. And that's how you wind up as the third all-time leading scorer in Ohio State history. Transitioning to that underappreciated player. For what
0: it's worth, he was 3 of 12 against Syracuse and then 1 of 8 against Cincinnati in the game before that. And 4 of 13 against Gonzaga. So he was not having a good NCAA tournament up to this point.
2: Which was, like, nice for him to sort of – it's like, right. They won while he wasn't good, and then he Mm. was good and almost saved them in a game that they lost. So, like, the idea for him that – he he got to have a moment like that after not good shooting games in the NCAA tournament for a lot of his career was a very big deal. That's a good thing to point out. I remember that, like that really bad against Cincinnati. What'd you say it was against Cincinnati in the Sweet 16? One of eight with of four eight. points
0: and four fouls.
2: Yeah. That's four turnovers. turnovers. So he really came through when they needed him. The underappreciated player of the game, I wanted to discuss this because they mentioned it on the broadcast, and it is one of my least favorite sports things. And I think it is a term and a category that often comes up in the NCAA tournament. And it's the X factor. And it's a thing back in the day, you know, we still do them sometimes, but I think I had to, I did, who's the X factor in every basketball capsule preview capsule I ever did for a decade, especially when you're trying to break down tournament stuff and all the X factor really means is who's your third or fourth best player because your X factor is not your ninth best player and it's not your one or two best players. Just call it that. Who's your fourth best player? William, or excuse me, Lenzel Smith was like the X factoriest X factor guy. He made me hate X factor because he's just like a good, solid player who can play some defense, who can hit some threes, kind of like a three and D guy. But Steven, I think they said X factor on the broadcast. So we have the much more sophisticated, JT Barrett underappreciated player of the game as opposed to X Factor but I am so out on X Factor I think I at some point refuse to do X Factors and things anymore because it's meaningless to me it, it uh, what does it mean we know exactly what it means but also it means something different to everyone else it's just a blob of shorthand that is nothing and it's Lenzel Smith
0: that's your unappreciated player
2: Lenzel Smith is my underappreciated player oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's my X factor rant. Well, and he's my, he's my underappreciated player of the game. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he, <laughs> I've never
0: knew what to make of Linzel Smith because he was never really an offensive threat, but I think he had the most valuable 10 points I've ever seen from a player in a tournament game because it was like, he only shot the ball five times and he wasn't really like attacking to get these points. It's just, you look up at the box score, he's got 10 points. And it's a, he had the type of box stat line that after the game, if you ask him about it, the, that might will go, he was our most valuable player tonight. We don't win without those points. But he doesn't do that every single night. So what do you make of it?
2: He's not mine, though. But go ahead. Uh, he did. He, to me, was like in this situation, Nathan, when he's starting with Jared Selinger, Deshaun Thomas, William Buford, and Aaron Kraft, he's your fifth best starter. That's pretty clear. If Lenzel Smith starts for you, but is your worst starter, I think you're pretty good. And then they're sort of reached a point where like the next year, the next couple years, he averaged 6.8 points per game. In this season, the next year, he averaged 9.2. The next year he averaged 11. Like the time, by the time he was averaging 11 as a senior, he was sort of like their second best scorer. Mm-hmm after Aaron craft. And then it was like, Oh no, you're going to lose to Dayton in the first round. If Lenzel Smith is like your second or third best player, you're not really going anywhere. If he's your fifth best player, you got a chance to do something. So I thought that like he fit, he was he, he, he t- one of the things he does that I think like a guy like this, he's the guy that gets kicked out to for an open three, but rather than taking the three makes one more pass to a better shooter. Who's a little more open. And that guy shoots it. Cause if you're playing with William Buford and Deshaun Thomas, that should happen a lot. And he kind of holds. And now I'm just describing an X factor. I'm so, I guess, I guess I guess I'm wrong. I guess he's the perfect X factor. I take it back, but I thought like he's underappreciated, but he, he helps things fit together.
1: Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think when I think of like an X factor, I want, I, I almost look for what a State needed was an X factor off the bench in this game. If they could have gotten some offense off the bench, especially when Thomas was in foul trouble, this may be a different result at the end of the game. Yeah. So I don't think they necessarily needed it so much from their fifth starter. They needed some more from though. that that's who should be. If we were talking about one of those bench guys being the underappreciated player of the game, it's a probably game. Ohio state had won. Who was your guy, Steven for underappreciated player.
0: It's Aaron Kraft. And it's literally because this category is called the JT Barrett underappreciated oh. award. And I think he just might be Ohio state basketball as JT Barrett because he's not at all anywhere near the most talented point guard Ohio State's ever had. You probably don't even mention his name. As a matter of fact, there's a guy playing in Ann Arbor right now that during this time, all of us Columbus natives were arguing should have been the starting point guard at Ohio State and not Aaron Kraft. And, so, and but Trey is that, you know, things happen. That mother Shannon Scott over Trey Burke. So we're, we're at where we're at at this point. But in watching this again, Ten years later, man, Aaron Kraft is like the most annoying basketball player to ever watch because he makes so many energy hustle plays that are all equally valuable. And every time you're like, that's not a that's not a charge. That's not a but no, but he's not a great score. He's four for 11 this game. He's got 11 points. He's not a great playmaker. He's only got three assists, but he has some crucial steals. And his lateral quickness to get to the spots where he can get some of those charges, especially when he's trying to jump a screen, that stuff, I appreciated that stuff more now than maybe I did 10 years ago. And so yeah, I just think he's Ohio State basketball's JT Barrett. So I'm gonna give him this award.
1: And yeah. those guys, there's I love the hated Big Ten player. I love that player who's hated by 13 other fan bases simultaneously and unequivocally and even though there might be somewhat respected i think craft was sort of in that conversation for a year or two where every other team was just done with him and it was tired of seeing him by the end of his career and uh, those guys are so much fun and i think they sometimes affect the energy of a game beyond what they do i those guys can sometimes get in another team's head like the guys on the other team are just like, I hate looking at that guy. Um, I hate hearing that guy and his antics or whatever. And uh, those guys have a, a palpable impact, I think, on games. I've seen it happen with some Purdue guys through the years. Wisconsin's clearly had some over the years. Um, I, those guys are just a lot of fun to watch. And, and Aaron Kraft, I think, sort of epitomized that for a couple of years.
2: He averaged 8.8 points per game this year, shot 50% from the field. Again, the more as the talent dissipated after this season, Jared Sullinger leaves after the next season, Deshaun Thomas leaves. There's more of an offensive load on Aaron Kraft. That's probably not what he can handle. Uh, his shooting percentage go down, goes down. He goes from shooting 50 percent to shooting 42 percent to shooting 47 percent. This year, he shot 36 percent from three. His last two years, he shot 30 percent from three. He did have a shot in this game, Stephen. I think it might have been early on where he got a kick out for a three and stroked it perfectly and drained it. And by the end of his career, his elbow was flapping like a chicken wing. It's like he forgot how his shooting form exploded on him. But like there, if you ask him to only do certain things, you trust him with the ball in his hands. You trust him to get the offense started. You trust him to feed guys in the low post and the high post. He's going to be a pain in the neck on defense. And then he can make a couple open threes if you don't ask him to do it too much, this would be like Jamari Wheeler was like Aaron craft light, light this season, but it's a reminder of mm-hmm. it can be a really valuable role. And they haven't really had, I mean, after Aaron craft left, and then it was Shannon Scott was like, Oh yeah, no, they really miss Aaron craft. Like, you know, when you have a guy like this, you take it for granted in a lot of ways underappreciated, but then when he's gone, like they really haven't, had a player very similar to him in the last 10 years
0: game manager which is fine when he's your fourth best player
2: yeah which is like in this moment with jared sullinger william buford and deshaun thomas yeah. like he might be that's probably what he is so it worked and they're a final 14 so they have a lot of there's a lot of good candidates for an appreciative thing but again i think we may have the jt barrett Aaron Kraft comparison is one that I am very much here for. And again, people may remember this from the old versions of the Bad Podcast. I think we were, and I guess we didn't do it. We weren't doing it back then. We we argued about Aaron Kraft after the fact. I think back then I was just arguing with Ari like it, walking down the street. But Ari had reached a point with Aaron Kraft where Ari felt like Aaron Kraft was so underrated, he was overrated. And I think he had a spread in Sports Illustrated of like walking down the hallway, holding books and stuff. And Ari was like, I'm out. I'm good. He's fine. He's an okay player. Could we do without the the, the two-page center spread in Sports Illustrated? And I was like, well, you know, he's a good little player or whatever. And so, like, it's one of those things that he probably got too much attention given what he was. But you when you watch him in a game like this, he's an effective basketball player when he's surrounded by talent. If he's not surrounded by talent, then he's not quite as effective. Slob moment of the game or slob of the game. Nathan, I'll go to you because I think I'm I'm wondering if this is I wonder if you have a slob here that you would like to discuss of this basketball game.
1: Well, it's an extension. I, I had Aaron Kraft here taking oh. charges left and right. Like that's to me kind of the basketball equivalent of a slob moment, like the slob moment in football is that pulling guard who rolls around and, and lays a guy out. And in here, it's like you stood your ground and you got flattened and you get the ball now. Um, you're taking points off the board. I think even in one of those cases, uh, um, it might not have been the one he took Kansas scored on a play and had it wiped off because of a charge. So, um, he was setting the tone that first half, part of the tone that was set. The reason that Ohio state went up uh, the way they did, um, in that first half was the way he was playing defensively.
2: Yeah, no, I think he took, he took two charges early, two charges probably in the first eight minutes that seemed to have an impact on the game. Um, where'd you go with your slob or slob moment, Steven?
0: Yeah, I just used it as a, um, let's talk about the big people. Yeah. And uh, I it's not so much like slob moment. It's just there were seven slob moments for Jeff Withey, yes. who has seven blocks in this game. And it's like, and then on a night when Deshaun Thomas and Jared Sellinger are eight for what, twenty thirty three from the field, he's why they were eight for 33 from the field, because he's sending all these shots back in our face. And I do remember that from back in the day. That was like a thing. Like Jared Sellinger is a highly skilled big man with a big butt, but he is not that tall and he is not athletic at all. So what happens when he goes up against a seven foot shot blocker? Well, we find out he goes five of 19, even if he finishes with 13 points and 11 rebounds, because Jess with who is literally out there just to block shots, it keeps sending shots back in his face.
2: So this was somewhat similar to what had happened against Kentucky and their NCAA loss the year before with Josh Harrelson, who was kind of like a nobody big guy, who I think had 3 blocks and 17 points in that game. I do, I think I remember this again. I have a terrible memory, but Steven, I think I remember watching this game and thinking, I'm sure everybody was thinking the same thing. Jared Sullinger feels small in this game. And and I wrote a whole story about his butt at one point about how he did have a big butt and it allowed him to clear space and sometimes it kept shot blockers off of him because he could sort of move guys around, get the room, maybe do a little fade away. But as you said, he was never going to dunk over anybody, Stephen. But there were moments here. He had the shots that were blocked. And he had other moments where it was like, you fed him the ball in the post. And he just like spun, pivot foot, nothing there. And it just felt like you would in a pickup game against a much bigger guy where it's like, well, I can't get a shot off here. And for a guy who was now going to go on, this was his last college game, and is going to go on and be a first-round pick in the NBA, he just felt small. Because seven-foot Jeff Withey kind of had his way with him a lot of times, Stephen.
0: Yeah, I think we saw why his – because you also, if you think about it, the NBA was changing at that time. And so you saw work out at the next level because he was a smaller big man who could get shot thrown in his face at times. And so if he has a night where – even if he's a quality three-point shooter, if his three-point shot is not on for a night – How effective can he down low if none of his moves are working? And so he's having to, I remember early on in the game where they would get it to him, but he would have to fade back extra, extra far. And it would basically be a bad shot. And even Clark Kellogg's talking about, you got to go into the shot blocker here and trying to give him, it's basically giving ways that like Jared Sellinger can combat that. None of it was really working because Jeff Whitney was so patient with a lot of these block, block shots.
1: I found myself thinking back to our conversation from a day earlier about football when we were talking about the difference between height and length. Mm. And how critical length is, and leveraging length um, among offensive linemen, but I think also low post players. The same applies. I think also Ohio State and are part of this, but I don't think he was the only one. I I think there needed to be uh, some some just better recognition of when you have the moment one and when you don't, and kicking it out. You've got capable shooters, you can repost, and I felt like they just got a little stubborn with it down low and that's how you end up getting blocked seven times by a um, future NBA bench guy.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It was,
1: we'll we'll talk more about Derek
2: Sellinger. It was, listen, his NBA career got derailed, I think a a lot because of his back, because he he had the back issue at Ohio state, but there was also something that he didn't have a lot of margin for error because of what you said, Steven. sort of with his, kind of a lack of athleticism, kind of a lack of size has low post moves, but you know, when you get to the NBA, he did like when he came back for year two, and we thought he was gone after year one. And he was like, no, I'm coming back. He was like, yeah, 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 sure. You are. And I was like, no, he actually did stayed for a sophomore year. And he tried to develop that outside shot. Steve, and that was an important part of his game, but Jared Selinger was never going to make a ton of money in the NBA shooting 18 footers. Right. But if he couldn't mm-hmm. hang with a, for instance, a guy like Anthony Davis, down low, then it's just going to be hard on him. And again, he's almost a little bit of a bygone era to some extent. And by the end of his career, it felt like it was catching up with him a little bit.
0: That'd have been even rough. I mean, the with he gave him problems. I mean, Anthony Davis, <laughs> that shot blocking machine would have made things worse. But yeah, it's just, that that transition of errors for, for how basketball was played, where it wasn't really about, about the slow big man and just give him the ball and let him work anymore. It was about go- high level guard play. And if you had a big man who could shoot the outside shot, great, because then it's more about screen and picking and pops and stuff. And he could do some of that stuff, but it was never going to last because when you can't guard and you're undersized and you don't really have athleticism, that's not a great formula to stick around in basketball anymore.
1: And it wasn't just with you. I thought the moments, the, the minutes that Kevin Young gave Kansas off the bench were pretty huge in this game. I mean, Kansas's front court won this game. They won this matchup, certainly. And, you know, he comes on and gets, you know, five boards and a block and he eats up some fouls. Um, those were big minutes.
2: All right. Malik Hooker, where did he come from, Award? Either a guy who makes a play out of nowhere or just makes a difference in the game for a moment. Was it. Travis Relaford, who had the steal, there was a moment where Kraft kind of made like a bad pass at the top of the key and, and Relaford like not stole it. And then what was it? It was a moment where a Kansas guy was sort of one on two with Ohio state. And it felt like Buford and Kraft sort of like not gave up on the play, but didn't attack him, and he wound up getting like a one-on-two layup. Do you guys remember what I'm talking about? There were Mm -hmm. just like a couple moments where – and then there was the play at the end of the game where the guy for Kansas when Ohio State's down three trying to stay in the game with 10 seconds left. He steals the inbounds pass from William Buford and should ice the game, but instead he tries to throw a pass to a teammate and throws it straight out of bounds. So there were a couple loose moments here where Kansas guys, Steven, sort of felt like they – popped up out of nowhere and and made big plays and got steals that really hurt Ohio State.
0: Yeah, and then there's the other one where uh, they're running a weave play and they got really lackadaisical with the ball down the stretch. They probably still should have won this game and Thomas Robinson just like breaks up the weave play and he goes on the other end and now granted um, Aaron Craft he like keeps them from having a fast break layup because he gets back into the play and strips him but it's not so much Kansas made plays As much as it is, Ohio State got really lackadaisical with the ball, and Kansas made them pay for it.
2: Yeah, they were loose at the wrong time. That was like they had like that weave that was it just popped. It was Deshaun Thomas should have been set up to shoot a a shot in the final thirty seconds to try to put him ahead, and the ball just popped off his hands. Mm -hmm. And the Kansas and like you said, Thomas Robinson got a fast break. Nathan, did you agree with that? That there were just moments where in the second half, a Kansas guy kind
1: of just popped up out of nowhere and got a steal that Ohio State shouldn't have let happen more to the point i thought there were a couple of times where kansas was as much as they turned it over was like in the process of making some other mistake and ohio state couldn't quite hold on to the ball couldn't quite just make that play what was the play where is this the one you're already referencing where there's a loose ball and and somebody's cutting to the basket and they just throw it away and i guess i was happy that happened from kansas actually um yeah. but like just could did ohio state capitalize enough on Kansas's mistakes in the second half. They were, I think there was, there was, there was more there. And maybe if Ohio State was just rattled, maybe it was the lack of Thomas on the floor for long stretches. I don't know.
2: Yeah. They just got, they got loose at the wrong time. Um, We'll talk about it at the end. Uh, They should have won. Ohio State should have won. They had Mm -hmm. a, they had multiple 13 point leads in the first half and they, they blew it. And they were better. I Like, Kansas had Thomas Robinson. I remember thinking going into the game, man, Thomas Robinson's going to be a problem. But they Ohio State, I think, was the overall, Stephen, like one through five better team. Their pieces kind of fit together better. And, yeah, I mean, that Jeff Withey blocks seven shots because he's seven feet tall. But I feel like Ohio State, they dominated the first half and should have had better answers. I think they were the better team. Kansas mm-hmm. is a blue blood, but I think Ohio State had the better team this year. They
0: jumped out to a 26 to 13 point lead. And I was like, yeah, that's about right. It seemed like a game where just looking at these rosters, Ohio State jumps out to a lead. Kansas probably works its way back in, but it maybe shouldn't get any closer than six. And Ohio State should still walk away with a six or seven or eight point win. But because they act, oh, yes, Kansas is the blue blood, but Ohio State's got a better roster. It's the Thomas Robinson show versus Three legitimate scores for Ohio State, a pretty smart, high IQ bo- point guard, and Linzel Smith kind of plays like a veteran. The pro- part of the problem is the bench gave them nothing at all outside like, of Shannon Scott. Yeah, like Scott had three blocks, which were impressive, but nobody even took a shot on the bench.
2: Sam Thompson, Sam Thompson, not Chance. Yeah, Thompson.
0: I'm sorry, Chance. Yeah, yeah, but, sorry, yeah. They Sam didn't even Thompson. take a shot.
2: They had, they 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 had uh, 39 minutes of no 29 minutes of bench play, no shots <laughs> which Nathan is, is hard to do. I mean, it's a, it's a remarkable how sort of short they were here. Cause this was, this was this second year group, which is basically the whole lineup is the second year guys plus Buford. And then they had this freshman class, which was like Sam Thompson and Amir Williams and Shannon Scott. But like most of those guys weren't ready to help yet. And so they wound up with like a, five and a half man team and it's hard Nathan like in a game like this in the final four you might need more than five and a half guys
1: yeah I mean my where did he come from was going to be I already mentioned Kevin Young and then Connor Tehan for Kansas hits the only basket by a bench player in the whole game but it was huge it was in the second half he just like got a wide open three and knocked it down and Ohio state starters outscored Kansas's starters. If you take away those three points, right. Ohio state would have won 62, 61. So pretty massive basket. And it's, it, it, it sort of emphasizes the kind of out of nowhere ness of it that Ohio state's bench was mostly nowhere. As, as Steven says, other than those blocks by Thompson just, and, and, they, and they needed it so bad. They needed just somebody to come off the bench and, and be assertive or or get some kind of spark. Um, you really I mean just over over 40 minutes, one basket off the bench would have been changed everything about this game.
2: Yeah. All right. We can move a little quicker through some of these categories because again, they don't exactly fit the Jim Trestle to punt or not to punt moment of the game, like a decision that somebody had to make, and the Bill Davis, Tim Beck questionable coaching move of the game. Anybody have something for either of those? I do want to talk about Deshaun Thomas's foul trouble at some point, and I thought it could fit maybe into one of those two categories. Nathan, did you have something else you wanted to talk about in either of those two?
1: Well, I don't know which one these fit under, but I thought the sequences at both the end of the first half and the end of regulation were interesting. of the first half, I had actually originally put this under the Bill Davis-Tim Beck thing because- uh, Todd battle calls a timeout to set up their final play of the half. And I don't know that they necessarily got something bad. I don't know that they, I don't know if what happened is what they drew up. What basically happened was half the floor cleared out and Aaron craft is able to come rolling in to try to get a layup, but then he just gets the uh, crap swatted out of him, which again was happening in this game. And Kansas goes the other way with it for a basket, cutting into that lead. And, that to me, it wasn't necessarily so much a bad decision or anything or, or a questionable moment, I guess, whatever, but it was, it was an instance where I thought that kind of helped Kansas's athleticism come alive. I thought that was part of the spark that they were able to take into the second half.
2: Yeah. I actually, I had that for my uh, Ted Ginn junior speed moment of the game, that Kansas fast break after craft gets blocked and Clark Kellogg notes that he feels like Kraft went a little too quick because he left too much time on the clock. But as you said, it was sort of like a lane just opened up. And he was like, oh, I guess I'll take this free layup. And then Jeff Whitley was like, no, you won't. And Kansas makes a layup with 0.1. And they had been up 13 the whole last four minutes. They were up 13, then they'd be up 11. They'd be up 13 again, then they'd be up 15, then they'd be up 13, then they'd be up 11, then they'd be up 13. They were up 11- the craft layup should have made it 13. They should have gone to the break with a 13-point lead. Instead, it gets blocked. Kansas makes a layup with point 0.1. They go to the break with a nine-point lead. And in a game that comes down to the last possession that winds up being a two-point game, the difference between a 13-point lead and a nine-point lead at halftime changed the game. You could feel the momentum, Steven, too. I mean, that was a that was a really bad sequence for Ohio State. But, sort of, to Nathan's point, I'm not sure if they did something wrong, but Kansas did two things very right in the final six seconds to get that final layup.
0: Moments at the end. It's so they play it right. Uh, Aaron Kraft makes the first free throw, 64 62. And then it's 2.9 seconds left, and so you're probably thinking you don't want to send them back down the court to shoot more free throws. So you you do what everybody does: you bounce it off the front of the rim, or you try to get a, a quick layup. Um, that doesn't work out. But then there's 2.9 seconds left on the clock, and you just like don't foul. You just let them run the clock out. And they're all just kind of looking at them. And I'm that that's I don't I don't necessarily I don't know if that's a questionable coaching decision because you're saying don't foul because you want to go after a steal, or just like guys had a mind fart.
2: Yeah, so that sequence at the end, I, again, like the, to sort of end the half and end the game with sort of confusion and Kansas capitalizing on things. We do need to talk about that little foul shot at the end, because again, there's this weird sequence. Ohio State's down three. Kansas steals the inbounds, then throws it out of bounds. So can't, Ohio State inbounds with like four seconds left. They foul craft immediately because they don't want Ohio State to get a chance to shoot a three-pointer to tie the game. Kraft makes the first foul shot to cut at the two and then they hand him the ball and he takes the ball. The, the nanosecond he gets the ball from the ref, he shoots it to shoot it off the front rim and try to get the rebound himself. But he's across the free throw line too early. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't work. And then as you said, Steven, they Kansas then inbounds and Ohio state doesn't foul. Now listen, they inbound with 2.9. They foul with 2.1. Kansas is already up two. They go down. I mean, are they really going to get a chance? They would have maybe, if Kansas made one of two, had a chance at a length of the court shot to try to make it to, to go to overtime. So the game was already lost by then. But, Nathan, I you could you knew what Kraft was trying to do, and he did get the rebound. It did hit the front rim and go right to him. He just went too early. But like, if that works, man, that kind of would have been a thing. I guess it was the best strat. What, should they have some done something different there? Was what Kraft was trying to do in the moment and sort of catch everybody sleeping and quick shoot that? Was that the right thing to do? Do you think?
1: I mean, in that case, the way that game had gone, I think that would have made more sense than the old like try to clunk it off the back of the iron and hope you get a tip in or something like that. Just because Kansas again was winning the front court battle in that game, I don't think you bank on the tip in there I think you try to get a longer rebound and do something with it. so I think it was a smart idea but maybe something that they was just kind of spontaneous. I don't know if they'd ever really practiced it that way. I think you probably have practice and I don't I mean I guess it's a little weird to ever practice missing a free throw on purpose but do you practice that like that scenario and what your guys around the basket are gonna do to just try to get that tip in with no time left? I don't know if they'd ever practiced the little like quick pitch concept. And that's probably why it didn't work out.
2: Yeah. Bad last couple seconds in both halves in a two-point game. It, It does wind up costing them. Kenny Guyton, next man up award. I gave this to Evan Ravenel, who I still follow on Twitter. And has had like a very interesting overseas basketball career. I think he's in Japan right now. I think he'd been in various European spots before. But I follow Evan Ravenel on Twitter. He's a good guy. And every now and then he'll be like, oh, the cherry blossoms are out in Tokyo. And it's like, what kind of life are you living? But he has made this career for himself as an overseas big man. He had started off at Boston College. He transferred to Ohio State. And he was like a good backup center. He was like a solid backup center, a good friend of Jared Sullinger. Um, so I gave the next man up award because he was the guy, Nathan, you were sort of saying like, hey, they could have used a little more help when Deshaun Thomas went out. Evan Ravenel is not going to score, but they wound up playing like a two big man look sometimes because they had Ravenel and Solinger out there together, but they just didn't really have any other options at that point. Kind of the whole point, Nathan was like, there really weren't that many
1: next men to have up. I didn't have anybody here. And especially yeah. from the Iowa state standpoint, just because I mean, when Thomas and Solinger go eight for 33 and Thomas on top of that is spending so much time on the bench with foul trouble, somebody off the bench has to do something, man. I'm not saying they have to take the game into their own hands, but three guys combined for zero field goal attempts.
2: Yeah, it's not good. Um, Anybody for you uh, for the Kenny Guyton next man up, Stephen?
0: No, for the same reasons you guys just talked about.
2: All right. If they're going to bite, they'll bite as a pup. John Cooper Award. This is Sam Thompson. To me, he's a true freshman. He's the only true freshman who plays at all for Ohio State in this game. Um, he winds up with winds up with a four-year career at Ohio State, averaged 2.1 points per game in this season as a freshman that averages 7.8, 7.9, 10.2. And I will tell you that I waited for four years for Sam Thompson to develop into something great, and it never really happened. I did a gigantic story at one point in Sam Thompson's career after Victor Oladipo at Indiana had developed from one year he was kind of like a leaper defensive guy, and the next year he was an all American and the number two pick in the draft and my offseason story with Sam Thompson was like, you're on the Victor Oladipo plan, aren't you? And he was like, Oh yeah, I'm on the Victor Oladipo plan. And he kind of just dunked for four years and did not do a ton. Other than that, he is a super good guy. He is, he has the best hops that I've ever seen covering Ohio state basketball. I mean, I don't know what his vertical jump is, but it's through the roof he was a really good AAU player in Chicago. Steven, I, I'm, I'm sure you have some kind of view on Sam Thompson. There just felt like there was more in there than ever really came out. He never really developed the jump shot. He never developed the all-around game. But that dude had some traits, man.
0: I feel like he did in this game exactly what he did for his entire career. He jumped.
2: Yeah. Slam Thompson, man. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's just this time it was blocks instead of dunks, but still jumping.
1: Yeah, he was the guy who took that third charge in the first half, though. Yes, he was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, you would have liked him to be
2: sort of like a three and D dunker guy. And it just there really wasn't much three there. And there was some D and a lot of dunks. The main thing they did, they had they reached a point where they had a bunch of inbounds plays designed for him. And he was Mr. Catch a lob off an inbounds and dunk it. And then when that happened, once every four games, the roof would come off the place. And then the rest of the time, it was like, yeah, that's fine. So, um, good guy. Senior year, 26% three-point shooter. Like, not great. You know, just never – averaged 10 points a game as a senior, but that was like an era in Ohio State basketball where people were wanting more. It was sort of like the – it was the post-Kraft and Thomas and Sullinger and Lenzel Smith time, and it was like that next class below – with Sam Thompson and Shannon Scott never quite lived up to it. And that kind of wound up being like the beginning of the end of Thad Mata that like, they just didn't quite hit on stuff as much as they used to. Uh, but I think he's the only pup. Anybody else have a different pup? There really weren't that many pups in this game. No. Yeah. No. Speed moment. Anyone else have a different Ted Ginn junior speed moment than the, uh, the last second, they had a couple moments where Kansas did get out on a break and make a couple sort of fast bake layups. I think they had one, like in the final two minutes that really mattered too. There were times when Ohio State kind of got beaten down the floor um, a couple times. Anyone else have something for the speed moment?
1: No, I thought yours was the best option. Yeah.
2: Yeah. All right. Now we got to talk about their long shorts. We'll do that next on Buckeye Talk. All right. So we want to get around eventually to like what should have happened here. But Stephen, we have to talk about this. Is this the back end of the long shorts era? Because it's Jim Nance, it's Clark Kellogg, it's New Orleans. It doesn't feel like a million years ago, except for the fact that they look like they're playing in their pajamas. It is insane. What were we thinking? How did we get to this point? For the shorts and the jerseys to be this baggy?
0: Shout out to Michael Jordan and the Fab Five, and we just kept, you know, pushing the envelope every year. Since this is my era of sports, right here, the tight jersey up top with the long, with the bag, big baggy shorts on the bottom. The watermarks on the back of the jersey, the two-tone sleeve that's white on the interior, but then the team color on the outside with the pads on it. Guys wearing two sleeves. This was a different time of basketball right here. It's it's and in the moment it felt like it was amazing. It was elite. Now it looks very bad. We look sloppy. Like, why did you wear that? Wear clothes that fit you.
2: It looks like they're wearing zoot suits, man. I mean it's yes. What, but how long has it been? What stopped this? What ended the baggy shorts era? I think I don't think uh,
0: it's not like when we started wearing baggy shorts, you can to like some people who are the reason why we started wearing baggy shorts. I think people just stopped wearing baggy shorts and people just started wearing shorts that fit them. And then over time, they just started getting higher and higher and higher. Um, maybe you'll credit it to when you play defense and you're actually getting serious, you'll pull your shorts up and you got sick of being able to do that. Maybe if you just wear shorts that fits you, you don't have to do it. But I just think it was gradual how like now, if you look at basketball players, shorts, are basically John Stockton level and the jerseys are still tight.
2: Yeah. Maybe not quite John Stockton. Again, there've been a lot of bad basketball looks over the years, right? I mean, the idea of just like normal size clothing that fits appropriately is not often. We are not there, but no. this was, Nathan, I guess we, you know, I was covering basketball during this time. I wasn't walk around saying like, man, these, these shorts are too baggy. You were about to become the Purdue beat writer. Were you walk around saying these shorts are too baggy? It was just what we thought the normal thing was.
1: Well, and I would have been covering still high school sports, I think, around this time. And the fashion trends obviously trickled down. So you would get players at the high school level who are like, you know, five, seven on a good day. And they're wearing the same shorts that the guy who's like six, seven in the big 10 is wearing. And, uh, that was an especially weird era. I think of sports when the guys have the, the, the baggy shorts, like down below the knees. Cause they're the, the, the short point guard on their basketball, their high school team or whatever. Um, I I, I I I don't know. I would rather have I'll take the baggy shorts era over the um the tucked in jersey with the belt era from like the the 50s and 60s or whatever. I think we've I think we've advanced.
0: I think we need to bring that belt back just yeah. for one game. It's like when the Lakers played that one year and they brought back they had like a retro night, but they really had a retro night. They brought back the short shorts and the belt and the the old jerseys. I think we need to bring that belt back. Bring back the ball that also had like the football lacing on it too.
2: Oh, that'd be good. Yeah, 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 yeah lacing. So when you, when you dribble the ball, like it's uneven because the lacing yeah. is in the way. Um, yeah. So that's our style check. Anything else in style check other than the gigantic shorts?
0: Can we, talk about the, the, can we talk about the raised court and why that was ever a thing?
2: So is it not? I mean, I can very much remember when they went to the domes and if you're going to do it in a dome, You've got to put the floor in a certain spot in the dome. And then for anybody to have a chance to be able to see stuff, you've got to have that elevated floor. That was the thinking mm. back then. And so you're in New Orleans, you're in the dome. That is why this took place. But it it was, it's, do they, is that not how it, it, it is anymore? They don't have the guys walking down off the elevated court. I don't even know they, what it they, is anymore.
0: They didn't. Yeah, it was last year, but also we were in COVID, so you know everything was at a Toyota Stadium. I don't—they haven't done it so far this year. We'll actually see this weekend when they're in New Orleans, ironically yeah. again if they're still doing it. But the last time I remember it happening was the year Villanova beat North Carolina on a game-winning buzzer-beater.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I don't know if it depends what kind of dome it is, but yeah. I I can remember. I don't know when it first happened, but I feel like I can remember when it happened, and everybody was kind of like aren't guys going to fly and fall Whoa. off the court? Like they're falling into a fire pit and it doesn't actually happen all that much, but it is odd to watch a guy come out of a game and go to the bench. Like the first time you're getting used to it, I guess it became normal and like walk down steps. Nathan, that did take a little getting used to, I think the barn in Minnesota is actually like that, even not because it's a dome just because it's a thousand years old, but it, it was an odd thing for basketball when they started doing that.
1: Yeah. You've got, yeah, definitely the barn, and th- it is Vanderbilt. I know Vanderbilt has a thing where the benches are actually the under the baskets. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if that court's elevated to or not, but uh, there's there you still run into that quirk. It is there's a lot of things about it's the one thing I don't like about March Madness is playing the Final Four in these like airplane hangars, and it just because it just changes so much of the environment of the actual game. I think really up through the Elite Eights. The Sweet 16 Elite Eight round, you're still playing. I mean, yeah, they go play those in like NBA arenas. They're bigger arenas, but it doesn't, it, it, it changes the atmosphere so much when you have to go play in these dome stadiums. I
2: can definitely remember that Ohio State in the 07 Oden Conley year, their regional was in San Antonio in a dome. And there was like a big thing about sort of like sight lines when you're shooting and not having mm-hmm. the backdrop and that kind of thing. Yep. But that final four was in Atlanta in a basketball arena in like a normal arena. Mm-hmm. But that was like, it was maybe around that time when you started having that transition, Steven, how much do you think that matters? Do you think it affects? And I guess guys are used to it by now, but as a basketball player, Steven, are you against playing important basketball games in gigantic football arenas or is it okay?
0: No, I don't like it at all. I don't like it definitely throws off your shot because like the trajectory stuff is just weird. It looks cool on TV because you're only seeing the court. But like I, that can't be fun to play with when there's like, you know, there's so much other stuff that's just going on. And it's not really full. It doesn't really feel full in there. Even like sitting in Lucas Oil Stadium, watch the tournament games last year. It's like it doesn't feel like a full environment because you're just off in a little corner somewhere. I have no idea how Syracuse does it. Or oh, basically every home mm. game. I, I I I'm not a big fan of that. I
1: but get why awesome. you're trying to
0: do it, but I don't like
1: it. The carrier dome doesn't quite have the capacity of these domes that we're we're talking about mm-hmm. too. And I, I, I understand like logistically it would be hard, right? Like how would you play a final four round with games back to back and get all of those fans in there that want to see that in a regular arena? I guess that could be tough. The way the, the way the sport has progressed, like that would be a tough transition. So it makes sense, I guess, for the Final Four. It just – it's 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 it, it's not ideal because it just feels like you're playing in a completely different environment than guys ever play in, unless they've been to a Final Four before.
2: And I guess it was new enough for this game, for this Final Four in 2012, because they did a shot during the telecast of, hey, look how far away some people are sitting. Mm-hmm. And they had, like, a camera up in a corner, and then you look down and the players look like ants. And it's like, it- I'm at the Final four and everybody looks like they're playing. they the size of a thimble.
1: That was specifically a story about Bill self, how he had 25 years earlier been mm-hmm. at that convention for been at that arena for something, I guess, I guess 25 years earlier, he was saying that the they played convention. the final four there, uh, but he was sitting up there because there's always hmm. a co- coaches convention at the final four. So I guess 25 right. years earlier, they had played it there also. Okay. So um he, th- that was what that story was that he had been sitting up there in that seat, Second row of the stadium in the corner and had this terrible view. But now here he is down on the sideline.
2: Well, now I'm crying. It's very emotional. Congratulations to Bill Self. (laughs) Who is back? Who is back in New Orleans again? They can show the same thing. They can do the same story, the same seat up in the corner. Now, 35 years later, Kansas is back. And just again, to note, Ohio State not back. Kansas is. Kentucky and Louisville. It's kind of interesting. We got, we're getting this Carolina Duke rivalry semifinal game the other semifinal it was kentucky louisville which is i mean next to carolina duke gets up there right i mean that's a pretty cool thing so um all right did anyone have a meme meme it
1: i don't know if memes existed in 2012 maybe they did anyone have a thing that they memed out of this the, the closest thing I could come to was that that weird sequence where they, um, Thomas Robinson had a big dunk. It made it 36, 33 and forced an Ohio state timeout and they just replayed it over and over again, but they played it with the audio. So it was just like him grunting like, ah, 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 just like over and over and over again. And, uh, I don't know. I thought that would be funny. <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, that would be funny. Uh, that was a good one. Stephen, do you have one? I don't know if,
0: there just has to be some caption any time they show the three broadcasters and the fact that Steve Kerr is sitting there. And it's the fact like he's like five years away from being responsible for, speaking of Ohio sports fans, being the re- he's, go- he's going to be hated by Cleveland sports in five years because he's coaching the greatest shooter of all time. And at this very moment, no one is sitting there. No one is listening to Steve Kerr talk and going, that guy's going to win to be a championship one day.
2: It is. He's like, he's a, he's going to go on to coach Kevin Durant and Steph Curry at the same time. But on this night, he's saying things like, I think Lenzel Smith is the X factor. Yeah. and It's like, you have no idea what's in store for your life, Steve Kerr. It's going, it's going to get a little better from here. Um. All right. Now we're down. We got to get down to the nitty gritty of sort of what happened and what should have happened in this game. The Maurice Coulat game saving moment. Talking about Jeff Withey. Ohio State is down. 60-59 with, like, 150 left.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Aaron Kraft drives. Jeff Withey block. No, Ohio State's still ahead at that point. Ohio State's up by one. Aaron Kraft drive. Jeff Withey block. Kansas comes down, gets fouled, hits two foul shots. Kansas goes up 60-59. 137, they throw the ball underneath the William Buford because, like, I think Jared Selinger kind of got trapped. They throw it under to Buford. Withey blocks Buford. Elijah Johnson looks like he shot out of a cannon, coast to coast, lay up with 110 left. Now Kansas is up 62-59. The next moment is the one you talked about, Stephen, where Deshaun Thomas kind of fumbles that pass. But those two Jeff Withey blocks led to two runouts that led to four Kansas points and took it from a 59-58 Ohio State lead to a 62-59 Kansas lead. And Stephen, yep. like, that was it. And it was that they couldn't get, they had decent looks. Jeff Withey snuffed them out. They got out and ran. And all of a sudden it was, it was over. And re-watching it, it's, Ohio State had led from two, Kansas went up two nothing. Ohio State led the entire rest of the game until the final two minutes. And it was kind of remarkable how quickly it got away from Ohio State.
0: Yeah, that block with 118 left on the Buford shot combined with the way that uh, Sullinger and Tommy shot Made me very much really consider him to be the guy who owned the game because he did yep. his job. He protected the rim in key moments and he basically took out Ohio State's best two out scoring options. So I almost went, actually, I might change that. I think Jeff Whitney is the guy who owned the game because nobody did their job better than he did that night for 40 minutes. But yeah, I thought Kansas up 60 to 59, and that's a really good look for Ohio State. And maybe you can build some momentum off of that. And- said it's a block they go down and score layup you know they never trail again for the rest of the game
2: what did you think nathan as it sort of just got away from ohio state in the end it felt like for 93 percent of the game like ohio state was going to win
1: didn't it so that sequence that you're talking about what was the first play that you had in that sequence
2: i had uh craft driving and getting blocked by withy and it leads to two kansas foul shots on the other end
1: it was so I actually wrote down some other stuff in that sequence, but starting earlier, Kraft gets a steal and a layup with two twenty-one left, and it's fifty-nine fifty-six. So before it was fifty-nine fifty-eight. Iowa was up fifty-nine fifty-six, and then in a, a very quick, and I can't remember. It's the, it starts with the sequence you're talking about. It goes from fifty-nine fifty-six to fifty-nine sixty-two, so six points the other way in a span of a minute and sixteen seconds, and it it really was like it's just in 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 the blink of an eye. Kansas makes you know two plays. But again, that's why I actually picked something else for maybe the most critical point of the game because while it seemed like Ohio State was in control for much of that game, it was a f- fragile control, and especially for much of that second half. And one of the reasons was – hold on. I got the numbers here. With So early in the second half, I think there's about 17 and a half minutes left, Deshaun Thomas gets his third foul and sits down. Yep. He sits down for probably about five minutes – They bring him back in and very quickly gets the fourth foul. He has to sit with his fourth foul with 1140 left. So you're playing a huge chunk of the middle of this game. And I know Deshaun Thomas did not have a great game. He's three or 14 from the field, but you wonder if being out of sync and having to sit for long stretches factors into that. And he only plays 23 minutes of a final four game. These guys, you know, everybody else that's important in this game is playing 34, 35, 39. If you get another 12 minutes out of Deshaun Thomas in this game for Ohio State, Is there any question that they win?
2: So we have to talk about Deshaun Thomas here. I love Deshaun Thomas. I think Deshaun Thomas in basketball and Vaughn Bell in football are my two joie de vivre guys that I've covered at Ohio state who just loved it, man. They just loved it. They just love playing the game. They love making plays. They love the moment. They never shied away from it. Even maybe when they should have, especially Deshaun Thomas I remember writing a story very early on in Deshaun Thomas's career about, man, you love to shoot. He's like, yeah, I do. You never are going to stop shooting. I'm never going to stop shooting. And like sometimes to his own detriment. And he knew that, but in Evan Turner's final year, At Ohio State, I believe this is right. Ohio State lost to Tennessee in the Sweet 16. And David Lighty got in foul trouble in that game. And and Thad always regretted Lighty's foul trouble. He got two fouls. They had to take him out. He felt like if Lighty would have been able to play a normal game, Ohio State would have won there. And here you are again. He gets the third foul. They take him out. They don't want him out too long, right? Sometimes you bench guys for too long because you're so afraid of the fouls. And he gets the fourth foul fighting for a rebound. I guess it was a foul. It wasn't like a hack right? I'm not going to say it's ticky tack. And then he misses seven more minutes. This guy played like 34 minutes a game the whole year. He played 24 minutes in this game. I think you're right. He shot like crap. What was he? Three of 16? No, three of 14. I think he was. Yeah. And he had, I counted him. He had at least three, three pointers that went in and out. He rimmed out a couple shots that like everything looked good and they just didn't go in. And then he got in foul trouble and then he started sitting and then he gets an itchy shooting hand and then he starts forcing stuff. And then he starts missing stuff like a maniac. And at the end of the game, he misses a three at the top of the key. They scramble to get it back. Then he misses a forced three trying to tie the game. that leads to the Buford putback dunk. But Steven, like it's just, it was not the best version of the Thomas out of sync, out of the game with foul trouble, not shooting. Like he usually does. And if if he's anywhere close to himself, I agree with Nathan, Stephen. I think Ohio State wins this game.
0: Yeah, because it it makes up for the fact that Jared's probably not going to have a great night. But something that your best two players are having a rough night. You can't overcome that. That's just regardless of what Buford is doing. When your best two players are having a rough, you can't overcome your best players having a rough night, especially when one of those guys can't do anything about it because he's what he played. Twenty three minutes the entire game. I mean, you're not overcoming that.
2: He averaged 35 point. No, he averaged 31.4 minutes that year. And he played 23 in the biggest game of the year. It's really rough. And again, here they are in a game where they get tossed out of the tournament. The year before, William Buford goes two for 16. And now this time, Deshaun Thomas goes three for 14. And it's just unfortunate, Stephen. I mean, we're not going to act like it's only luck. Does the defense deserve some credit for this? But even they said during the the telecast, Stephen, that like he had Steve Kerr said he had some good looks. They just didn't go in. And if he hits a couple more of those threes, uh, it changes the whole game. Three for fourteen, one for seven, and three pointers is a tough way to go out uh, for a guy who really had developed into a big time scorer.
0: I do wonder his his playing style was. He's a volume scorer, a volume shooter, at least. Yes. And he never got a chance to get into a rhythm. And so while he was getting those good looks, if he's not already in a rhythm out there, this is on the table, a three for 14 night, because he might he's the type of guy where he might need to see two or three in a row fall. And it's like, all right, now I'm in here. Now I'm in the game. But you're, you only play 23 minutes when you're used to playing 30-plus minutes a night. You never get a chance to do that. And some of those shots were at the end of the game where – They were just kind of forcing up threes that I think were a little quick and they didn't need to do, but yeah, that's, he's a rhythm player. Never got a chance to get into a rhythm and took some good looks, but also took some bad ones as well.
2: In their uh, first game of the NCAA tournament, he was 13 of 22 against Loyola from Maryland, 31 points, Nathan. I think that's right. I think he got trapped in a vortex that he missed a couple early and then right at points in the game where maybe normally he would be sort of shooting himself back into the rhythm. He got in foul trouble and then he's on the bench. And then when he comes off the bench, he's like, Hey, 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 I got to get myself going again. And now he's forcing it. And it just, it went it mm-hmm. the wrong way on them. And it was the worst thing that they could possibly have happened, especially as you said, Stephen, on a night where Sellinger is just not going to be a huge factor with with in the game, There are games like this, Nathan, where at other points in his career, other points of that season, Deshaun Thomas took over games like this. And in this game, he just didn't have a chance to do that.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I remember Deshaun Thomas at his best, just being a a casual Big Ten basketball fan at the time. But um, and I kept waiting for that moment tonight in this game and just um, most of the night. Or, or for too much of the night, uh, he's just pinned to the bench. And like I said, I mean, if he, yeah, even if it isn't 12 minutes, even if it's just eight minutes, get him up to his average. Eight more minutes from him in this game is just so much more dynamic than whoever they were playing in his place. I think they win this game.
2: Does this look like a championship Ohio State team? Steven, we'll start with you on this. No,
0: and it's simply because the teams they would have to have gone through to win a national championship exaggerate their flaws.
2: Mostly well, Anthony it. Davis, right? Like this is yes. your answer is mostly yes. an Anthony Davis answer. Yeah.
0: Yes. It's no, they're not a national championship team because an NBA Hall of Famer is waiting for them on Monday. Yes.
1: And see, that's where I still said yes. I still say in a vacuum, this looks like a team that can win a final four. This looks like a team that could win an NBA or an NCAA championship. I I had I, I think to answer that question, uh, you can answer it either way. Are you taking into account who they would have to play in the next round or even who they played in this game when you're making that judgment? Or is it just in a vacuum? Does this team look like it could win two games on, on a one weekend and win an NCAA championship? And I think if Deshaun Thomas doesn't get in foul trouble and if they don't have an NBA Hall of Fame <laughs> waiting on in him in the next round, because maybe you might be right, that the destiny was just that Anthony Davis was going to win that championship, then it's a team that can win that those two games.
2: So, yeah, I, I, I would say, I mean, they're better than Kansas. Do we sort of agree that watching this, the conclusion is they should have won Ohio State was better?
1: Uh, I think Ohio State is more talented. But, I, you know, I mean, Deshaun Thomas is in foul trouble for a reason. Yeah. Bill Self knows how to coach a basketball game. Kansas got a little bit more and, from their bench.
2: Three points more. Yeah. Stephen, what do you think of that? Is Ohio State a two point game?
0: Ohio State has the better team, but Bill Self did a better coaching job.
2: Ohio State was up 13 in the first half for much of the back end of the first half and sort of had its way. And I feel like they came out and they missed some good looks early on in the second half and then it got away from them a little bit. Um, I think Ohio State was better. I thought Ohio State should have won. I thought at the moment and I think it now, I think Stephen, you're right about Anthony Davis, but I'll also say here's the consensus first team, all American team for college basketball that year, Anthony Davis, Jared Sullinger, Thomas Robinson. So three of the guys in the final four Draymond green from Michigan state and Doug McDermott from Creighton. So yeah, Anthony Davis is a problem, but you know, there's no other Anthony Davis is on that list. Consensus second team that year, Isaiah Kanan of Murray State, Marcus Denman of Missouri, Kevin Jones of West Virginia, Michael Kidd Gilchrist of Kentucky, and Tyler Zeller of North Carolina. This was not exactly, Stephen, like this is not overflowing with NBA talent this college basketball season. Like Jared Sullinger was basically as good as anybody out there who wasn't Anthony Davis. So Anthony Davis is the, is the, the asterisk here. Was anybody going to beat Anthony Davis who also had Michael Kidd-Gilchrist? probably not Ohio state looked like they should have beat Kansas. So I would say, yes, it, it looks like a theoretical championship team because they should have played in the championship game. And then what if Anthony Davis gets in foul trouble, right? Steven, like, I think, I think they should have taken their shot and had a shot against Kentucky and they kind of blew it. They did. They blew. Is that fair, Stephen? Whatever we think the reason is that Ohio state blow this game.
0: Yeah. 100% they blew this game. And yeah, maybe I'll change my, it's like, yes, this looks like a championship game unless Anthony Davis, Anthony Davis, that's it. But yeah, they did blow this game. They 100% should have been playing in the national championship game. You have a double digit lead against a team who really only has one score and you have a double-digit lead while one of your best players is in foul trouble and the other one's not shooting well. So, okay, at some point Deshaun Thomas gets going or Jared Sutherland finds another way to score. That's why you blew this perfect position to roll away with a win given the fact that you didn't actually play that well and you still didn't get it done. Right.
2: And they had done a lot of good things on the way to get to this point, to sort of make right. up for the Sweet 16 loss The year before that that was the better team, the team the year before with all all, most of these same guys, but also David Lighty and also John Diebler. That's the that's the better team. And then this team kind of makes up for it. They make the final four trip that the year before its team didn't make, but they still should have gone even farther, even further than they did. Nathan, the enjoyment meter in general and for Ohio State fans on a scale of one to a thousand. What did you have for these two?
1: So general, I put 887. It's a close game in the final four. We've, you know, it's, it's always a bummer when the final four games are blowouts, I think. So it's nice to get an exciting game. that's coming down to a, you know, uh, intentionally missed free throw to see if they get the rebound, that sort of thing. But it was also a lot of turnovers. Oh, it wasn't like a super crisply played game. And then, you know, one of the stars, of the game, even in foul trouble. So but 887 was, I mean, even that might be a little high. And then for the Buckeye enjoyment meter, I put five fourteen because you walk out of there knowing you should have won. You're up thirteen in the first half, so there's a there's a certain level of enjoyment that I think is baked in. You're in the Final Four, anything goes. You're play, you know you're only playing other great teams, and you also probably know you're not going to beat Anthony Davis in the final, but you still leave there knowing you're supposed to win. You still go to bed that night thinking, boy, they let one slip away. Yeah, Stephen, what'd you have for those two?
0: Yeah, nine oh one, awesome Final Four game, and I'm. This was a late game, wasn't it? This was the second this was the second game, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so like that makes it even better. This is the this is main event game. Um, but yeah, I went 450 for Ohio State meter because you should have won the game and you lost.
2: So the last thing I want to talk about here, and I agree with both you guys, my my numbers are around the same for both of those. It's a good game, but also Ohio State fans would leave a little feel a little sick leaving. So this is 10 years ago. Ohio State's in the final four. They've been on this run. They had been in the national championship game five years previous. This is their third straight Sweet 16. They leave the arena. They come home. This is where the program goes. Elite eight the next year. sellinger has gone, but the craft of Sean Thomas sprinklings from LaQuinton Ross and guys like that, and it's enough. They make an elite eight run. They should have gone to the final four. They lose to Wichita State in the regional final. Then they lose in the first round of Dayton the year after that. The next year is the D'Angelo-Russell year where they win one game, losing the second round, then miss the tournament, miss the tournament, Thad Moda gets fired, and we're into the Holtman era where they have not yet been to the Sweet 16, although they've been a tournament-quality team for five straight years. Steven, thinking about that, if you're an Ohio State fan walking out that night after losing to Kansas and you – would have explained to them what the next 10 years of Ohio State basketball were going to be like. Wouldn't that Ohio State fan in 2012 have been pretty disappointed? Do you think that fan walking out would have thought, what, that's gone? What, we haven't been back to the Final Four? What, we're not really in the top tier of college basketball anymore? Or do you think, no, everything has a shelf life. They're not a blue blood. Maybe an Ohio State fan would not have been surprised to learn what the next decade would look like.
0: No, you'd be surprised because it's almost like you should have won this game. It's been just going downhill slowly ever since, especially once you get to maybe they would have believed like the last five years because it's like, all right, well, it happens. But it's when you combine the 15 and 16 and 16, 17 seasons where you just don't make the tournament. Yeah, you are just stuck here, get past this glass ceiling. I think that's what makes it the most kind of depressing thing to talk about.
2: And Nathan, you, you, I think you're making the point, Nathan, you thought you know, Bill Self maybe outcoached Thad Mata in this game. But you think about where Thad Mata and Bill Self were at that time in their careers, right? And you think about where they are. Thad Mata, it's been five years since he's been gone. He is not a head college coach anymore. Thad Mata is five years younger than Bill Self. And Bill Self, Nathan, is back in that same place in the Final Four. And Thad Mata has been fired for five years. Does that seem odd when you watch this game, this Final Four game, Ohio State and Kansas? And by the way, they they showed the graphic. That was Ohio State's 11th Final Four. And that's tied for sixth all time. And they're still tied for sixth all time. That we can say they're not a blue blood. But they have as many. They have the sixth most Final force of any program in the country. When you think about Bill Self and Thad Mata and where they are ten years later, Nathan, what do you think?
1: Just to be fair, I think it was Stephen who actually said that he thought Self outcoached oh, okay. Mata. I was just bringing up that hey, don't forget, like they don't just have a schlub over there. He he can figure some things out in the moment, and um, it's a interesting contrast because it's a good reminder of just how what level Thad Mata achieved. I have followed his career somewhat because we're from the same county in Illinois. And I remember him, you know, I remember the local, like the news Gazette, the champagne paper, whatever, like doing stories on this guy. His dad was a high school coach. I covered his dad's like girls basketball team. Some of the first things I did in journalism when I was getting into this in the mid nineties, Jim Mata. And I remember just sort of hearing about him, like on the fringes when he was like a, big time assistant and then he became the head coach at Xavier and then he went to Butler and then now he's at Ohio state. So it's worth remembering just the heights that they got to just, you know, to get to this final four, to get back to Elite eight the next year, it was almost a casual thing, right? Like the Ohio state casually goes to the elite eight for a handful of times in a, in a period and gets to a national championship game and gets to another final four. And, who knows? I wonder if if Mata had not encountered some of the health problems he encountered, how much that contributed to the fact that he's no longer even a coach. No, I think
2: that's a big part of it. I, I didn't realize that your Beanfield was so close to Thad Bata's bean Beanfield. So yeah, I was I was I a Jamaican Cardinal. Yeah, I went to Hoopston and did a big story on Thad. I spent like three days in Hoopston. <laughs> And the the previous season in 2011 when they were overall one seed and they opened the tournament in Cleveland. So we did like a big fad moda thing. Did you guys play the corn jerkers, the Houston corn jerkers? Were they in your conference?
1: Um, Eventually. Yeah. Early in my high school career, they weren't, we were in, um, we were in playing a bunch of schools, even smaller than Houston, but we eventually like the County sort of folded into a conference. And yeah. So I was a salt fork storm at that point later on in my career. And, it was the Hoopston area corn jerkers. Then he played for the, he was probably a Hoopston East Lynn corn jerker, but it had consolidated into the Hoopston area corn jerker later. I will say, Stephen, at
2: this point, Bill Self has a national title. When this is played, Thad Mata doesn't. Thad Mata lost in his national championship game. Thad Mata is in year eight at Ohio state in this game. Bill Self is in year nine at Kansas. Like they're Stephen, They're not dissimilar in who they are, how they got there, their level of success, and Bill Self's still doing it and Thad Mata isn't. And clearly, Thad's back issues clearly contributed to it. It affected his ability to recruit. It affected his ability to travel. I think it affected his ability to enjoy being a college basketball coach. So that is a huge part of this. But right at this point, Stephen, Bill Self and Thad Mata are basically on the same level of college basketball coaches, and now they're not.
0: Except one already has a national championship, and the other one doesn't that's basically it the fact that yeah. Bill self beat Memphis in a national championship game is the only exactly. thing um yeah it's it <laughs> yeah that's and now here we are ten years later, Bill self is once again headed to New Orleans for the final four, and that matters or Indiana and some uh, he's in the role at the in the athletic department staff and we're talking about whether or not chris holtman can live up to being bad motto
2: so that's our buckeye retalkable about basketball um you know we crammed in some categories i think this was a game worth reliving i'll be curious i don't know if anybody's doing big retrospectives you know there is just a lot of interesting stuff 10 years same place ohio state hasn't been back at this level and the team they lost to is back at the very same level pretty interesting stuff uh we'll do we have some more Football retalkables planned. The Friday podcast, we'll be talking about what we learned from Ohio State's offensive linemen and tight ends and interviews on Thursday. But for now, we will wrap this up. Ohio State loses to Kansas in the 2012 Final Four. Thanks to you guys for reliving it with us. For Nathan Baird, for Stephen Means, I'm Doug Maurice, And that was Buckeye Talk